Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Adam Benzine, a journalist and filmmaker whose documentary Claude Landsman, Spectres of the Shoah, is nominated for Best Documentary Short Subject at this Sunday's Academy Awards, and I wouldn't bet against it. Uh, by the time you hear this, he may actually be an Oscar winner, which would be our first. Let's call it the Simcast bump. Adam picked Primer, Shane Carruth's 2004 head spinner about a couple of engineers played by Carruth and David Sullivan who happen upon the secret of time travel and proceed to completely screw up their own lives by messing around with it. Famously made on a budget of just $7,000, it took the Sundance Film Festival by storm and went on to dazzle and frustrate audiences in roughly equal measure. It's a thinker, it's a puzzler, it's a treatise on chaos theory, and a handy reminder that humans will almost always be the worst part of any scientific breakthrough. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is someone else's movie. You know, I have a film out at the moment, and one of the questions as I've been going around with the film that, that almost everybody has asked, and that I guess I wasn't really prepared for, is what's your next film going to be? You know, and the answer is that I really don't have a next film, and I'm not in a rush to make a next film. But as I've given it a little bit more thought, it's made me think about, well, if I was to be, because this is my first... I've made my first film. If I were to make more films, <clears throat> what kind of a filmmaker would I like to be? And I think I would like to be like Shane Carruth. And I really look at what he's done with his two films, and I think that's the kind of model that I would like to adopt. Um, he made a film called Primer, and then he didn't make another film for ten years. Yeah. And he followed that up with a film called... Uh, Upstream Colour, which came out, I think, in, in 2014, 2013, yeah. 2014, 14, pretty much 10 years later. Uh, and I thought that that was an incredible film too. And then he's kind of gone again. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think that that would be... Um, that would be the, br the blueprint I would like. You know, I, it took me a long time to make my first film. Um, you know, I spent pretty much four years making a 40-minute long short film. Yeah. But I feel happy with it. And if someone were to if someone were to come to me now and say, um, you know, here's fifty thousand dollars, make a, a film about tin beans, uh, I, I would pass, you know, because I would say there are, there are plenty of um, very fine jobbing filmmakers, jobbing documentary makers who could who could do that for you. But if I'm going to make another film, you know, I I think it it would be something that I'd have to let into my life and let it kill me. Yeah. A bit like this first film did, you know, it took a lot out of me to make it. Um, and it would have to be something that I would be obsessive about, thinking about it a lot, um, and and probably spending years making it, you know. Um, that's the first reason why I, I picked Primer. And the second is, you know, sometimes I meet people who say that they want to make films, but they don't have any money. And they don't have a lot of people around them. And I, I have for years said to people that... Um, I think that Primer is the, the greatest low-budget sci-fi film ever made. Um, and um, in some ways, Primer is not that complicated as a sci-fi film in its premise. When, once you understand what its premise actually is, which a lot of people find quite difficult, it's a time travel movie. It's about two guys who create a time machine, and then that leads to all sorts of problems. 
So in one sense, it's a fairly straightforward film. In another sense, it's, it's probably the most complicated movie you could ever see. Um, and that's one of the things that I really love about it, is it, it's so willfully difficult. <laughs> <laughs> the, that's, that's an excellent way to put it. The level of dialogue is so... It, it's like he set a course to kind of obliterate exposition as much as he could. You know, it, it's so hard to understand what they're talking about, and I won't pretend that on the first the first oh, yeah, viewing yeah. of Primer that I understood what was going on. Um, it, it was after I went online and read several explanations that I kind of understood what was happening. I think I somewhat understand what was happening, and that's that. Two guys who work for a Silicon Valley firm are trying to create um, a device that will reduce the mass of an object or um, will reduce the effect of gravity on an object in their basement as a weekend project. Yeah. It seems to be about resistance, as yes. far as I can tell, but that's the only thing that I understand. Right, that and they part. have some kind of a toy egg that they're trying to do it with, and they're using palladium from a car, and um, they accidentally create a somewhat functioning time machine that allows them a small window of influence. Now, one of the things that I like about Primer um, is that, well, apart from the fact that many scientific discoveries have come by accident when people were trying to do other things from penicillin to all sorts of things, um, it's not a kind of perfect time machine. It doesn't have a weird dial on it that they can, you know, turn back to the dinosaurs or to the Roman Empire and then shoot back there. They can't go back beyond the point that they've created it. Uh, it has very severe limitations in that they have to spend as long in the time machine as that they want to go back. So they would have to sit in the time machine itself for a year to be able to, to, to go back in time a year. Right. You know, and they'd have to spend a year waiting before they would they would turn the machine on, they would wait a year, and then they would have to go into the machine and sit in the machine for a year and then come out at the point at which they turn the machine on. So even in its design, there, there are these wonderful diagrams that you can see online that explain yes, they are. explain the logic of the Primer time machine. That in and of itself was a lot to wrap my head around. Um, yeah, it really does take, I was going to say multiple viewings. I think you can get it into exactly yes. how the process works, but then the ramifications take another year. You know, yeah. Just of, of, of obsessing and reading and deep diving. This is a film that I don't think would have ever... Uh, reached a, a viewership beyond, you know, two film festivals and, and someone with a nosebleed immediately afterwards saying, I'm going to buy this and they'll never figure out a way to release it. But the internet makes it possible to access all of the extra stuff that, that makes it um, truly delightful. Yeah. The, the, and yet, but from the off, I found it compelling. Mm -hmm. From the first viewing, even though I didn't really understand, I, I, I felt like the the film in some ways is a challenge you know it's yeah. he's throwing the gauntlet down from the beginning and he's he, he says i'm you know i'm not going to wait for you this is the film this is where it's going you can try and keep up um and um so i guess the the second reason that i that i think it's good to talk about is because as i was saying sometimes i meet people who say i don't know that i could make a film i don't have any money mm -hmm. i don't have you know, a lot of people that I could work with. I don't know how to get into Hollywood. And the other thing that I love about Primer is that this is a film that, that, that pretty much one man, Shane Carruth, he wrote it, he directed it, he composed the original score for it, he edited it, he, he wrote the script. 
Um, he stars in it. He's one of the two actors in it. Um, and he, he post-produced it. And he did all that for $7,000. Shooting it on film. (laughs) You know, if he if he if he had somebody had lent him a digital camera and he could do it. I mean, he probably could have made it in today's terms for less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, I would think. But he he shot it on film. Yeah. And he entered it into the Sundance uh, Film Festival, where it won the Grand Jury Prize and the Alfred P. Sloan Prize for Science Fiction. So when people tell me I don't have money (laughs) to make a film, I say go and watch Primer. Go and see what Shane Carruth did with, I mean, almost literally no support. I mean, if you see the interviews he did, he says, my parents did catering on the film. They made sandwiches. You know, he had one or two other actors who were in the film with him. But just by the sheer force of his will, uh, he made this film. And uh, and he he won Sundance with it, you know, and it it makes me a little sick (laughs) how talented he is. It is terrifying. I, I, I I have interviewed him, uh, when, when Upstream Color came out, he was self-distributing, did all the publicity for it, uh, for it himself. Uh, in January of that year, colleagues of mine in the States were tweeting about having seen it. And I just said, how do I get on this list? And he, either someone referred him to me or he was just looking for mentions of his name and then tweeted me and went, I got you. And, and the movie's fantastic as well. Yes. And, and I'm in awe of his... Um, I'm in awe of the range of his talent, yes. I guess is what it is. Um, he, he is able within two minutes of Primer to just pull you right in. The, just that stark black and white frame, the opening, the, the, the use of room tone. He is able to use all of these things that are abundant and available to him for nothing and then turn them into like gripping drama. Yeah. And, and what he does in Upstream Color almost inventing a new cinematic language is, is just is remarkable as well yes. but on a different type of remarkability and he's he's not intimidating he, when I when I talked to him he was our interview was while he was walking to the subway in Brooklyn and it was the most casual conversation you can imagine with someone where you're talking about the life cycle of an organism and how human beings are really just a part of this thing and this yes. larger story that's going on in, in upstream color and we barely cracked primer but he just said like it, it was exactly as you described it's the things that are available to you that you take for granted which you can literally take for granted when you make a movie you can actually use all of these things yes and I, you know i feel that upstream color has an emotional an emotional dimension to it maybe that the primer does and yeah. well primer's um, the analytical film yeah primer's a very analytical film much more about <clears throat> much feeling. more emotional and, feel, and about feeling but i wonder I, I think his background was that he was an engineer mm-hmm. yeah um I'm also an engineer. I did a computing degree <laughs> before I before I moved to journalism. So, um, you know, I, and I wouldn't, I, 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 you know, in saying that though, I don't, I wouldn't compare myself to him. But, but you can I, respect I think the training. Like you can, you can I can respect it, but, uh, well, I'm curious about his mind. You know, I wonder how he how he thinks and how he feels when he looks at filmmaking as an as an engineer. Whether he looked at a range of films analytically. You know how people use camera shots, how they use lighting, and then applied that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's clear that he is thinking about films in a very different way that that so than so many other filmmakers. And I think that the the clearest benchmark before him, and I'm not sure how much it applies now because you know I'm going to be a bit controversial and say he's made a few bad films. But going back before that, I would say Terence Malick. Mm-hmm. You know, who would kind of make a film every ten years and it would come out and be a masterpiece. Uh, you know, I think he did like one film a decade. Yeah, well, it averages out that way anyway. It averages There's... out that way, but there were huge long gaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I must say, I feel that that well, I, 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 
I loved the Tree of Life, and I hated the one that came after it. Oh, to it. the Wonder. To the Wonder. Yeah. I mean, I really hated it. And I haven't seen Knight of Cups, but people tell me it's not good. But, oh. you know, I look and I see a correlation there between an increased work output and a decrease in quality. I mean, yeah. I hope that's not too controversial to say. No, I don't think it is. I mean, I certainly I agree with you. I think Tree of Life is is the masterpiece. I think it's the film yes. that he'd been making all along that he finally yes. found the language to the, do. The film of his life. I think so. Yeah, and I those aren't rushed literally. when you say, let's do a movie in two years, you know, on deadline. Um, and, and the other way that I think this ties in, of course, is that, you know, and I don't say this to, 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 to plug my own film, but just to draw a parallel. Oh, that's you know, my film, my film is about Claude Lansman, and he spent 12 years making his masterpiece, Shoah, mm. about the Holocaust. And he had a lot of external pressure uh, from people, from financiers who wanted to to have him make the film in two years and have it only be two hours long and he yeah. pushed back against that so you know I think about you know you mentioned earlier resistance it makes me think about you know if I, if I, if I am to make uh, another film then I would really want to resist external pressures and, 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 and follow my gut kind of as I did here and economy again would be the, the ability to work within a tinier frame of, of finance would give you more power to work on your own, I mean, with, yeah. with you know, with every compromise. I mean, every... the things that interest me. I mean, uh, there's this. It wouldn't be doing something similar again. It would be doing something very different. Whether mm-hmm. that would be a kind of um, episodic TV show about UK institutions, or you know, a hundred million dollar adaptation of Gravity's Rainbow, or um, some kind of interactive video game that would explore some kind of very dark spaces around depression. Uh, you know. Uh, there are all kinds of ideas for things but it wouldn't be another film about the Holocaust it wouldn't be another documentary about the Holocaust Mm -hmm. you know one of the things that again to go back to Primer I know that after um, he made Primer he had approaches from Hollywood and he tried to work with the studio system and from what I can remember reading the interviews it just didn't work Yeah, it just he, he couldn't he was like a kind of star shaped block trying to fit into kind of spherical holes It just wasn't working. I know he did some consulting on Ryan Johnson's Looper. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that, too. Yes, they, they, in terms of helping him work out the logistics of the time travel yeah. within that. And the, the, the sort of matter-of-factness of the time travel itself. Yes. Johnson said he didn't want you know, air being sucked out of a room or, the, or big explosive arrivals. No. But there is something absolutely pristine about it that calls back to Primer in a weird way. Yes. Sort of the cleanliness of everything and how things people just wink in and out of existence. Uh, from one second to the next, that does feel like something. In the, in, and weirdly, nothing in Primer works like that. People clamber yeah. out of boxes and yeah. you know, stagger around. But there is a sort of a, a clean approach to the science that that resonates somehow. I hope you appreciate also that I that I actually had my friends at CERN in Switzerland um, <laughs> break break the light barrier just for this podcast. Oh my god! You know, I don't this know if you've, you've seen the news, but this, this was just yesterday or so. I think that they announced that they have managed to send particles faster than the speed of light. I have not noticed that. Um, Although, if yes. this is a time travel conversation, it may not have happened when we're recording this. It might not have happened. It depends when you're listening to this podcast. Um, how, I guess, you know, I say yesterday, I guess I'm dating it. Maybe you can edit that out. Yes, we'll figure it out. Um, but the news from CERN is that they think that they have managed to send um, particles faster than the speed of light, which breaks... Einstein's laws mm-hmm. of relativity 
and they they don't really know what to do with that. Yes, you know? but how do you verify something like this? If they, well, this is what they're saying. They, we we think we've done it. We, they said we can't see where we went wrong, <laughs> so we want other scientists to come in and see. I think in a way they're hoping that they have got it wrong because right. the ramifications of sure. of it being right kind of rebuild the the, the very our very understanding of the universe. One of the things that I like in Primer is that there are unexpected side effects of their time travel, mm -hmm. and they don't know why. And this is this is the way it would be, you know. Yeah. I mean, in the same way that people, when they first discovered radiation, didn't realize what it would do to them, and you know, so they they start once they start time traveling a lot, they start getting frequent nosebleeds and, yeah. and ear bleeds, degrading motor skills. They lose their ability to write, mm -hmm. to handwrite, and they don't know why. There. And it's because you're putting yourself in a box and disrupting <laughs> the laws of physics is, of course, the answer. Uh, it, the film has a great twist at the end as well. I won't say that because I hope people who haven't seen Primer will go and watch Primer if they're hearing this conversation. Yes. This is the standard warning. If you haven't seen Primer and you're listening to this, please stop listening to this. Go see Primer and then pick up where you left off. Exactly. We'll be right here. We will wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. It has it has a really great... So can I can I discuss the ending? Sure, then, yeah. At this point, I think there are Okay, you've had enough warning, listeners. Yeah. It, it turns out that he had an even bigger time machine running as a fail-safe in the background, um, and he builds this giant warehouse to create this kind of building-sized time machine. Mm -hmm. You know, th th it's this idea of... of they just learned nothing. I mean, they understand the science of what they're doing, but the first thing that they immediately do when they realize that they can time travel is cheat on the stock market to become rich. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't even they don't even have a single conversation to discuss the ethics of it. Yeah. It doesn't even occur to them to discuss the ethics of it. It's it's that's the that's for them as uh, with engineering minds the quickest way to verify whether or not they are actually are able to to do that. Yeah. And then they become obsessed with changing every element of their life, you know, trying to make something perfect. You know, which I think has a nice symmetry, evidently, with him as a filmmaker. Yeah. You know, this I, they become control freaks, and there's this one, I, I think, as I recall, there's this one party. It's the party, yeah, I was going to say. And there's an incident that happens at the party, and it's a bit like Groundhog Day, when he's trying to, when Bill Murray is, is trying to recreate the perfect kiss mm -hmm. with uh, Andy, Andy McDowell. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're trying to fix this one incident that evidently happened at a party and they keep going over to it again and they end up killing versions of themselves and, and, and burying themselves in, yeah. in attics and, yeah. you know, but it, and it isn't always that clear what's happening. Well, yeah, we never find out it. what the incident was either. It's no. I, I have watched the film obsessively trying just to figure that out. I think it's that and somebody showed up. A boyfriend, someone's ex-boyfriend showed yes. up. But we never find out what the original version of the incident was. No. Something went wrong. I assume someone got punched or embarrassed. Yes. But it does escalate in the versions that we see. People, are, Someone brings a shotgun at one point and then someone else is hit by a car or about to be hit by a car. Yes. It's, and it's all dealt with in the dialogue because, of course, he didn't have the money to realize these elaborate sequences. Yes. So you do have what I assume is the, the most expensive scene in the entire film, which is where everybody is gathered. Just because you'd have to, there must have been multiple takes, and even crap and catering alone would be more expensive that day. Well, I think he said that he had a two-to-one ratio of shooting, which is insane. Which, how do you like those? The that dialogue, yeah, to get through that those dialogue scenes, just the the texture and the density. They must, he must have rehearsed it. They must yeah. have rehearsed the hell out of it. Yeah. I could imagine that, that he would do that. There's one other scene that I really remember from the film, which again, as a kind of logical um, part of the storytelling, really worked for me, and that's that. Um, you know, if if we were going to go back in time and change something, like right now, mm -hmm. 
we could we could plan. Um, okay, we're gonna get a we're gonna get a time machine. I'm gonna go back in time. I'm gonna meet Norm Wilner a year ago. Right. And uh, I'll just appear in front of him and say I'm from you know I'm from the future. And you now would understand that, but you a year ago sure, wouldn't, yeah. and you'd be baffled. And there is this one scene where a character just appears in front of them and you, the viewer, become on the side of the two main characters. Right. They have no idea where he's come from because, of course, they couldn't. If he has been able to use the machine, they don't know how he appeared there. I think he's one of the characters who was originally involved in their project at the beginning but got left out. Yeah. Maybe he separately has discovered his own time machine through doing the same sort of research or maybe he's come across theirs. He obviously isn't using it right because he collapses and starts bleeding which is one of the side effects of not using the machine correctly like exiting at the wrong point Mm -hmm. but you just don't know how he did it and that fits within the logic of the universe that they've created which is that if a time traveler were to suddenly appear out of nowhere you'd have no idea how they got there and they have no idea how he got there they can only theorize you know it's a very it's a very heady film yeah um and i think that's you know i i love films like that i i really love films that just you know, send the mind reeling. Yeah. I remember seeing it the first time and being absolutely giddy at a at a ten AM press screening with maybe eight people in the room because mm. most of most of Toronto's critics had seen it at Sundance, I assume, but okay. I, I've never been, so I I always have to play catch up. And there is this thing that happens at Sundance not every year, but every other year, where something just explodes out of the gate and then opens and everyone is just not even disappointed, just sort of Underwhelmed to the point of questioning whether or not the altitude at Sundance is affecting people. I mean, I'm sure comedies play better when there's less oxygen in your brain, uh, because inevitably things like Happy Texas that get snapped up for ten million dollars and all this uh, this noise that the that Miramax bought that film and it shows up and it's just very silly. Well, it's like eBay mentality. It's like eBay mentality yeah, yeah. where people get carried away. You know, there's the altitude, and also I think that buyers who are at Sundance sometimes. Um, don't want to go home empty-handed yeah you know and i mean because if you're a buyer by definition your job is to buy so you know if you have to get a film and you know there becomes a kind of validation circle if other people are circling it and bidding on it yeah and then as a result you want the biggest buy you want to make the biggest sale and you want to pay the most for something because that's the prestige of the big film that sold at sundance is going to be in the news for weeks at least in the industry uh and then primer which came out of nowhere and just one pr- racked up prizes, people were buzzing about it constantly, and it took, I don't think it opened until the summer, it took a while for me to catch yeah, up to it. I think buyers could see that it, this, is, this wasn't going to be a broad, a broad appealing film, because it is so uncompromising, and I think that's one of the things that has made it, that has grown its legacy, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's how old now, it's 12 years old? Mm, yeah, I think so, it was made in 2004, 2004 it came out, yeah. yeah. So I think its legacy will will continue to grow. But I'm curious to see what else he will do. I would love to see him given $100 million to to, to tackle something by pension, you know, or or something, you know, by Phil K. Dick. I kind of want to... Something unfilmable. I'd like to see him, you know, I'd like to see... I'd like to see him have some real support some real financing you know I kind of want to see him do something that isn't um, that isn't the the unfilmable film that I always think about is Confederacy of Dunces okay which 
isn't unfilmable. You could do it. It's, yeah. it's you know, you'd need to shoot it in period, but that's about the only complication, really, the only the only real roadblock to, to making that film. And, the, you know, it was gonna, Soderbergh was going to do it with, I think, John Candy uh, at one point, and Candy died, and, and mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman was considered, and he would have been great, but he died. And I think I would like to see him apply himself to solving the problem of filming the unfilmable, something that people have been trying to make for years, even if it is completely non-genre and, and therefore out of his wheelhouse. But the challenge, I want to see him grapple I think with something because his his attempts to reinvent the time travel movie and whatever upstream color is which I don't think existed before he made it unless maybe Malick is the is the analog that he was making a Terrence Malick science fiction film in its weird way just a film that's experiential yes. instead but it didn't feel to me I mean it has beautiful cinematography but it didn't feel like it didn't it somehow didn't feel like a Malick film mm. you know maybe it's the narration yeah that's, that's true there's there a really big isn't. difference you know it felt much more verite yeah, it's not lyrical in the same way. It didn't feel lyrical in the same way, no. Although upstream colour is, is is kind of lyrical, mm-hmm. but in a way that's very, very hard to, to kind of quantify. I mean, I don't believe that films are... I don't believe that, 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 that works are unfilmable. I mean, um, um, yeah, there are plenty Stanislav Lem's Solaris was unfilmable until somebody filmed it. Right. People talked for years about how Brad Easton Ellis' American Psycho was... The, the unfilmable book uh, until uh, a director came along and filmed it mm-hmm. um, you know and so I don't you know the thing that's been interesting me has been Gravity's Rainbow and this idea right. that it couldn't be a film of course it could be a film you know you pick the, you know it's your interpretation of it it's, right. it's a very literal thinking to think that something is yeah. is unfilmable I, I believe yeah I think when people say something's unfilmable they, they mean they don't want to try I mean, that, that yeah. it's imposing. Or as they see the book. Yes. Yeah. In all its broad detail, you know, in widescreen, they don't see how all of that could be there. But of course, an adaptation is, is about what you what you choose to focus on, what mm-hmm. you leave out, what you include, what you change. Sure. Well, you know. think about Cronenberg's Crash, where the book really does remain unfilmed, but we have his interpretation of it. Or Naked Lunch. Actually, Cronenberg's a great example for this sort of thing, where he will take a literary property and unpack it into its component parts, keep some, throw away others. Mm. Uh, Naked Lunch, largely because he had to, he couldn't go to Morocco in the end because of the first Gulf War. He had to cancel his shooting trip and film it all in a soundstage in Toronto, becomes a self-reflexive examination of the inner landscape of uh, of William S. Burroughs. And it's genius. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, and then Crash, which I think is up there with Upstream Color and maybe um, maybe Sallow in terms of films that reinvent geography and narrative and visual uh, language, is a film about like it's a film where the sex scenes are blocked in a way that is the equivalent of dialogue. You know, like mm-hmm. who's on top and whose arm is where and whose leg mm-hmm. is where. Those are those are actual. They they have it has meaning. It has um, it, it is it's legible on screen. Um, and those are books that remain untranslated to cinema. Uh, what, what Ben yeah. Wheatley did with High Rise um, is a much better translation of Ballard himself than what Cronenberg does with Crash. Cronenberg absorbs Ballard and makes it his own. And it's it's uh, kind of trying to do it, Cronenberg, with Cosmopolis, but I think in that case, I think um, I think the author wins as opposed to the filmmaker. I think the, 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 the movie of Cosmopolis replicates the book, but doesn't mm 
actually capture it in a way that it, or capture its spirit in the same way he, he did with um, with the Ballard and, and Burroughs works. I think if you if you I think if you are tackling a book, you have to decide how how true to it you want to be. I mean, one one adaptation that I really loved of recent years, a much more mainstream example, uh, was Gone Girl. Mm. You know, because it seemed to me like a kind of almost a punchline to a joke, in, in that if you said to someone, imagine if if David Fincher did a trashy airport novel, yeah, a trashy romance a airport novel, it. you know. And after seeing it, which I, I loved, I loved Gone Girl, but I could tell that what I loved about it was was Fincher. Yeah. And 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 uh, uh, a friend of mine, um, who had read the book, uh, she's actually a writer for Real Screen Magazine, Minori Ravindran, said to me, um, "Oh, do you want to? Uh, do you, are you going to go and read the book now? You know?" And I said, "Absolutely not. <laughs> I can just see that I would hate this as a book." You know, this is exactly the kind of book I wouldn't want to read. But as a film, it, it seemed to me that he took it and he took, you know, there are these shots in these Fincher films like Panic Room where the camera's going through coffee mugs right. and, and, and up walls and things like that. And he, he gave it, you know, he put it through the prism of a Fincher landscape. And, and I, I really loved that. Yeah, I, I, wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's a Shane Carruth landscape, if there's a lens through which he sees the world. I wonder. He's um, if we gave him an, uh, something to adapt. He certainly. I mean, I, I see the other direction. I've, I've been thinking about the other time travel films that have picked up from Primer. Mm. And, and what would you say those are? There's what a handful. Think? There's one um, Project Almanac. Weirdly enough, which came out last year, uh, is the Paramount and MTV Films co-production in which you use time travel to go to Lollapalooza. Uh, because you're a high school student and you don't know any better. But there are moments in it that suggest very, or that don't suggest that directly kind of riff on Primer because the characters are self-aware enough that they discuss other time travel movies. But the one that's never spoken of is Primer, and it's the one that they're following the most closely. It's about kids who discover the blueprints for a time machine in their basement and re-engineer it and build it and the testing sequences which all involve some sort of gravity at play before the machine actually fires things float for a second they quote primer in in a really strange um almost garbled kind of way like a reinterpretation that the screenwriter clearly knows what he's citing and the director maybe doesn't or the director has decided right. he can do it in a better way is, is the film good it's not bad okay um it's not great and the ideas in it are very very simple but it's it's kind of hampered by the found footage requirement, uh, right. but it's also about 17-year-olds who film anything anyway. So I was kind of okay with it. The The problems come in the in the third act where they just didn't really know how it was going to end. I, I suspect, I mean, the DVD has three different endings, which are all similar enough to say that we didn't, we, we didn't have a plan, but we knew this was how we kind of wanted to end it. And it ends properly. It ends the right way for the story, but it's ultimately about this... You know, the teenage hero's resentment of... Uh, not resentment. Well, some of it. It's about a mixed-up teenage uh, hero who wants to fix everything because his father disappeared ten years ago, and it all has to do with time travel, except it sort of doesn't in the end because they kind of forget that bit. But it's... As a, as a sort of evocation of what Karuth is doing in Primer, it's really interesting. I don't know it succeeds as a kid's movie, as a young adult, you know... PG-13 time travel picture where all you do is get to go back and say the right thing to the girl who rejected you the first time. Mm. But once the characters start becoming aware, because, yeah, I'm garbling it now myself, well, but, yeah. but there's, a, there's a moment where someone says something and to someone and it's too composed and, and 
she, the recipient of this conversation, immediately knows that this is not the first time they've had that conversation. And that kind of awareness yes. is the kind of thing that Karath would always prize. I mean, the, 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 the best line in the movie, the line that everyone always quotes, is, I am kind of hungry, I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. <laughs> and it requires you to be so immersed in the film that, that that's funny instead of yeah. confusing. But yeah. once we learn the language of, of time travel in Primer, it is endlessly rewarding. Yes, but I think that was done better in in, in Groundhog Day. I think Groundhog mm-hmm. Day proceeds that again. Going back to that, you know, it's nice because we have our own little time loop going on here. Yeah. Going back to that 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 perfect date, almost perfect date from his point of view, because he doesn't get to sleep with her. Bill Murray has with Andy McDowell, and then his attempts to recreate it, and you can see the unease on her face. He, there's a scene where he's rolling around in the snow, trying to have a kind of mock snowball fight with her, which happens so naturally the first time round, or what we assume is the first time round. Uh, and then when he tries to recreate it, she's, she, it, it's, you know, it doesn't work. She yeah. can tell that something is, is up, and yeah. she's weirded out when he tries to kind of replicate the, the, the perfect kiss, you know. Mm-hmm. It is interesting how, how time travel is, you know, portrayed on, portrayed on screen. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of, of the, in, the more intellectual ones, but also something is perfectly engineered is Back to the Future where yeah. you know you have a closed loop in the, in the story and things can still be changed but we really only experience it from a single perspective going in a straight line uh, which is why people are so I think so willing to go along with it is that there's no challenge to the model once once it's set up and established that this is the car you go in the car you go you get out of the car you're somewhere else it's it's perfect. It's a perfect engine for for the narrative as well because it immediately becomes a personal story about complication and and emotion and family. But um, then there are the other ones, the things like, well, actually, I was going to say time after time, where you know Malcolm McDowell has so much fun with the science gibberish. But of course, that's also really about one trip and things aren't changed. The it actually works in the the predetermined universe where whatever you do will still be done. You can't change the future. You can only get in its way yeah. um, so for yourself were there other do you have other well I liked the, the, there was the, a Tom Cruise film not that long ago it was I think it was called Oh Edge of Tomorrow yeah yeah, uh, yeah it was it was originally called All You Need Is Kill mm-hmm. and then it ended up calling it had lots of different titles actually it ended up calling it Edge of Tomorrow yeah um, still not a great title no not a good title yeah. but but interesting again a kind of mix of a sci-fi film and Groundhog Day yeah um it reminded me that it can be fun to watch Tom Cruise yeah. running around, you know, doing his action hero movies. In terms of other time travel films... It's funny, that's actually the one that... The other film that quotes... That I, that sort of plays with the same idea in Project Almanac with having someone figure out that they've done this before. Yeah. Because Blunt has already had... Blunt's character has already had that experience. And yes, so she of, figures of going through the loop. When he's trying to keep her from getting in the helicopter. I, I like Edge of Tomorrow as a sci-fi film, but I don't, you know... I enjoyed it, but really, I, I love very original sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a film at Sundance um, a few years ago called Another Earth. Oh yeah, yeah. That I really like. Britt Merling and Mike Kale. Yeah, again, low budget, um, not not quite as impressive as, as Primer, but you know, it was it was it was about the concept. Mm-hmm. You know, they took this this light sci-fi concept of Another Earth appearing out of nowhere. And the ramifications that there would be a doppelganger planet, and use that to explore, um, you know, I- emotional, emotional issues. You know, and I really liked as well the Phil K. 
Dick adaptation that was kind of done with rotoscope with Robert Downey Jr. Oh, sure. Um, it's a great book. It's called mm-hmm. A Scanner Darkly. Scanner Darkly. Um, again, just this where this world where everybody is becoming addicted to substance D, mm-hmm. and you're not quite sure what substance D is or what it does. Um, I think, as I recall, it, it it forces the left and right hemispheres of the brain to operate independently of each other, or something like that. Yeah, I like you know I like conceptual sci-fi. I like I like Lem, and I like um, obviously Phil K. Dick, um, and it, when that's done well for film, you know. Probably my favourite sci-fi film is is Solaris, mm-hmm. um, and I like both versions. I like the Soderbergh version very much too. Yeah, you know, he too. kind of he kind of made a Hollywood version, but he made it work. Yeah, it's a um, it's a distillation somehow of of the themes while still having George Clooney and Natasha yeah. Macahon kiss. Like it, it, exactly, it's it, it had that, but at its version. core, it's like you know, there's something very it touches touches on the same issues that Blade Runner touch on. Uh, or in the book, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep? If you could, if you could, um, you know, at what point is something real to you? That's what it, that's, when you really distill it down. That's yeah. what they're talking about. At what point is something real to you? And at the end of, uh, you know, if Blade Runner, Harrison Ford has to decide, you know, knowing that that she's not a human and that he might not be human, how much does that ultimately matter? And for George Clooney and Solaris, for his character. Um, if you, you know, if your wife has died and you miss her terribly and you go to this planet, which is a kind of, I think, from what I remember in the book, it's basically a kind of immature god that creates life without thinking through the ramifications of creating mm-hmm. that. And and if you can be with someone and, and it, you know, it looks like your wife and it tastes like your wife and it smells like your wife, and for all intents and purposes it is your wife, and you can be back with her and you can, you know, you can you can have something that you've lost... You know, then at what point does the logic in your brain that's saying, "Well, this isn't her because she died," right. at what point do you override that? You know, it's it's a it's a big concept. What is real? Yeah. You know, is 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 what's real just what's experiential? Um, these are the themes that I that I that I really love in 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 sci-fi films. Yeah. You know, it's the sort of thing. It's not about robots yeah. and explosions and you know. Alien invasions. Alien invasions. Yeah. It, it's it's the sci-fi of ideas. You know, it's it's taking as a central proposition just two words, which are what if. Yeah. That's those are the sci-fi films I love. What if? You know, you take something and you just slightly twist it. You know. Yeah. It's remarkable too that whenever these conversations come up, they're always within the realm of sci-fi. You know, like clones and and replicants and what if this was a person that you had lost is back again and it never enters into ghost stories uh, having just no. watched a bunch of really bad horror films in the last few weeks because it's January and that's what they do uh, I'm, I'm always amazed at the idea that Del Toro comes close to it in Crimson Peak like if the dead could communicate with the living what would they say what would they want to tell you and what would we ask them uh, in Crimson Peak they're sort of manifested as these horrifying gigantic apparitions that you know, make wailing noises and smash things because that's the only form of communication they have. And I wish I could remember who it was. It might have even been Guillermo. Uh, somebody once posited the idea that um, ghosts appear so horrifically to us because they cannot control things. They don't know how they're coming through. It's the baby Huey theory. A little tap will shatter a window, but you just don't understand that it's all you're doing is tapping on a window, but you're making these huge thumping sounds and terrifying people. Yeah. Well, in the sixth sense as well, exactly. You know, yeah. explores that idea. He doesn't. Sort of he through. doesn't realize how how terrifying he is. Mm. He doesn't. 
yeah. realize how he's perceived. And Primer comes the closest, strangely enough, to the supernatural aspect of of returning to yourself because you you are getting that that classic ghost story warning from you know warning and portent you just don't understand it you can't interpret it when you unlock the message that we've been hearing from the beginning of the film it lands with such an incredible um uh i don't even know what the right word is but it's it's it it locks together the movie in a way that the film sort of actively resisting because it's trying to trick you out of understanding it but going in a second time and a third time and realizing what the message is and it's a voiceover that that we're given from the very beginning of the movie and once you understand that it does have the kind of a supernatural power in that it is the the warning from the future that will change absolutely nothing because everything is already so far gone Hmm. Um, and I think weirdly Carpenter's Prince of Darkness uses a similar device if you've seen it uh, with a message projected from through dreams uh, that's revealed only in tiny little flashes over the course of the movie and it's kind of remarkable that it works as well as that does and yeah I just I want to I want to pick Karuth up and ask him and hold him down and ask him what were your primary influences we should bring him here we should tie him down and force him to answer questions that would be maybe that's the next Sundance hit yeah. On a, on a side note, on a slightly lighter note, please. Uh, to diverge, we're discussing kidnapping a filmmaker. Yeah, okay. since we're talking about kidnapping a filmmaker and forcing him to make films, um, one of the things which I really love at the moment to diverge from film to TV, sure. um, and on a much lighter note, is there's a TV series on Adult Swim called Rick and Morty. Yes. Oh God, I love and it. And I just, I just, right over there. I just love it. Um, they take all of these tropes from. Uh, from sci-fi, hive minds, alternate galaxies, yeah. time travel, clones, and they have so much fun with it. Yeah. They really just, you know, they, they play on all of the kind of tropes that you've seen many times over in sci-fi films. Because, um, you know, taking obviously as its lead point back to the future, sure. this idea of this crazy mad scientist and his grandson. Um, there was... Uh, an episode I saw recently where his ex-girlfriend is a hive mind like the Borg that yes. assimilates planets. You know, it's just brilliant what they're what they're doing with that show. I feel like it's a show which is so true to what it's set out to be. Yeah. It has not compromised one iota. I um, I mean, I'm I'm basically at this point an acolyte for Dan Harmon. I, I will follow yeah. him anywhere, and his his emotional acuity is so remarkable that uh, yes. that I that I really give him credit for most of that in, in Rick and Morty because Justin Roiland's work is much more chaotic yes. and it's a great synthesis of the two I mean it's chaos with feeling but to the point where I think midway through the first season has there's that remarkable sequence that ends with um, nothing more complex than spoilers here yes it's a spoilers nothing more complex than a kid telling his, his slightly older sister that everybody's going to die and nothing means anything so let's go yeah. watch television together and it's heartbreaking because of the cumulative effect of the show yes and it's an, an animated series where people you know turn into Cronenberg monsters after a sex potion yes. gets out of control which it's, is it's, you know it's almost like that whole episode that you're referring to led up just to that punchline yeah. where he says I really Cronenberged up the whole world yeah. and it's <laughs> just a whole bunch of Cronenbergs running around down there yeah. and then they they kind of skewer the you know they their solution to screwing up an entire planet is to, to simply leave and find another timeline yeah. And then with a very knowing nod and a wink, they say, you know, we can probably only get away with doing this two or three more times. <laughs> you know, it, it's such a nodding, you know, yeah. 
wink to a kind of sci-fi solution of things, you know. But as you say, it has real heart. I mean, I was stunned. There was an episode in the second season, which culminated um, in in one of the lead characters attempting to kill himself. You yeah. Know? yeah. And suddenly, I'm 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 feeling very emotional watching this. Yeah, you know? and in a really thrown away kind of way as well. If if you weren't paying full attention to that scene, because it's done without dialogue, just a little music. Yeah. If you weren't really paying attention, you might just think he was doing something else. Yeah. And. It is, yeah. It's shattering. It's absolute. Yeah. Why do I care so much about these little when, drawings? Well, we've all been there and, and and broken up with someone or had somebody dump us, mm-hmm. and just go to go home and have that completely low feeling. Yeah, that you just want to kind of collapse in a pile and feel very sorry for yourself. You yeah. know. Great. So I love I love that. You know, I'm a big I'm a big fan of sci-fi. I mean, and maybe that wouldn't have come across from having done a, a fairly traditional documentary about the Holocaust. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, then, the, 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 the closer question is always the same, which is, yes. in what way has the film we're discussing affected you? Is there anything that you've borrowed or stolen or pulled? And I can't imagine there's a lot that you could work More in. than you would think. But More than really, you would think. So. Firstly, um, it made me feel that, you know, in terms of, bizarre as it is to say this in terms of Primer's influence on Claude Lansman's Spectres of the Shower, firstly, that you don't need money to make a film. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, money helps. Sure. But I rounded up a gang of uh, very talented Torontonians who worked on a deferred salary basis uh, with the promise that we would be doing something worthwhile uh, if they trusted in me, which they did. Um, and that, you know, your vision is, is more important. It is the most important thing, um, and that you that you have to trust in your vision. I mean, I I felt that this was a kind of short, long short or mid length film. I had distributors say to me, you know, you must make this film uh, at least ninety minutes long because you know you'll have a great theatrical run in New York. A lot of people will go and see it, and I said, you know, the. Um, the material just won't support it. You know, I know the length that this has to be, and if that means less people will see it, then so be it, but it'll be a much better film, it'll be a stronger film, a pacey film, uh, an emotional film, and, and I think it's good if, if the audience is left wanting a little bit more. Yeah. And actually, that has played out very well, because HBO's bought it for America, CBC's bought it for Canada, uh, it's been nominated for an Oscar, obviously, um, so I, I feel some justification in that. But I, I kind of had to stick to my guns on it, um, and and do it the way that I felt was the right way to do it. Um, it is kind of remarkable. I mean, I remember when I saw the, the first description of it in the Hot Dogs Guide when they gave us the, the master list that, oh, 40 minutes. And my first thought was, well, that can't possibly be right. Well, there's I mean, some irony there. Yeah, Shoah is this <clears throat> gargantuan, um, you know, to... to uh, magnificent octopus. It is a gigantic, sprawling document. And what you've done is focus on the man who made it and yes it has to be that short it has to be that focused you're right it's it would get draggy uh simply because you're exploring one man's emotional state and that's a lot to take i think if you stretch it out any further maybe beyond 45 or 50 minutes it would be pushing it well i I could see within that time constraint a structure to tell his emotional story Mm -hmm. uh which is uh always seemed to me a very classic hero's journey a man who's presented with a quest, he, he, he has to decide whether or not he's going to accept that. Right. And then he goes off on this journey, and you see the emotional, um, you see the emotional 
effect that it has on him at the end and what he learns about himself. Mm -hmm. That's the structure of the film. People sometimes say to it, and I don't really like it, but they say, oh, it's a making-of film. And I say, yes, it is, but it's not about the making of Shower. It's about the making of Claude Lansman. It's about how this had this effect on him. Um, And I have to admit, I had never considered it. I had always, because... And how it broke him in a way. Yeah, because he is so scholarly in in his presentation, and because every interview I've ever read with him has been a focus on the process, and no one ever led me to consider that, of course, this would be a a crushing effort to to engage with that much horror and indifference, which is even worse. The, The way I feel coming out of his movie compounded by you know the the decade he spent working on it and on the emotional investment of going through all of the material more than once is nothing I cannot imagine I could not really even conceive what it must have done to him and then I saw your film and it's like oh of course I'm a monster like, I just had no well, idea and he had to he had to put all of his emotions on hold yeah in the years that he was making it so then afterwards was really when he began processing it so when he says you know it filled him with anguish it was like a bereavement yeah you know um so there's that. And also, I mean, you know, when I was making this film, people, of course, questioned. Nobody will give you your first film. You have to take it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, why are you the right person to tell this story, especially if you haven't made a film before? You know, I think that, you know, meeting with financiers uh, from or Canadian organizations who will remain unnamed who <laughs> would say, you know, very strongly, I feel that you should add another producer to this project, a more experienced producer, okay. because we're not confident that you'll get any broadcasters to invest in it, that you'll get any money for it, that you can take the project to fruition on your own. So um, I guess that would be my takeaway, would, would really be, you know, there are creative solutions if you don't have money and stick to your guns really stick to your guns and you know don't be afraid of failure even if you even if it doesn't work out you'll feel better about yourself for having you know tried to do something the way that you want to do it rather than to compromise and make something that you think other people want to make i mean film is a creative medium you know mm-hmm. don't be don't be too quick to 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 compromise yeah i would also add be a genius which definitely yeah, and helps. also be Shane Carruth yeah. and, and and you know be a kind of uh, autistic Menson, you know savant genius. Yeah, doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Adam Benzine and best wishes to him at the Academy Awards this Sunday, where Claude Lensman, Spectres of the Shoah, will hopefully win the Oscar for Best Documentary Short Subject. And I'm not just saying that because Adam did this podcast. It's a terrific piece of work and essential viewing for anyone who appreciates Lensman's accomplishments. Keep an eye on LandsmanFilm.com for festival dates and release information. And you can find Adam on Twitter at AdamBenzine, all one word. And while Primer is currently out of print on DVD, the New Line Home Entertainment release is available used almost everywhere. And in the U.S., you can rent or buy the film on iTunes and Google Play, or stream it on Netflix. Sadly, there doesn't seem to be a Canadian streaming or VOD option at this point, but the used discs are around here as well. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review up on iTunes, um, ooh, maybe you already have. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.